from Daniel chapter 7, 7 through 14, and 23 to 27. This is Daniel recalling. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying, frightening, very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It was crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts in that it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated. The books were open. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but they were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Skipping down to verse 23. The one that Daniel spoke to gave him this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on the earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms, and it will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones, and he will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. 
Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. May God bless our understanding of his word. Any of you know who that guy is? Does he look German? Because he's German. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Maybe that name's familiar to you, maybe not. He was a great Christian thinker of the last century. Uh, he is famous for having been uh, martyred by Nazi Germany in the year uh, when he was 39 years old. And uh, he served during his short lifetime as a pastor, a seminary leader and professor and author and a conspirator against Hitler. Uh, sometimes people like that kind of make me sick how they get so much done in such a short lifetime. You know, I'm 37, so I've got two years to catch up to Bonhoeffer, you know, write a few books, <laughs> lead a seminary, <laughs> find someone to, you know, form a conspiracy against. <clears throat> in a, he lived in a time when the state church of Germany officially spread Nazi propaganda and backed Hitler. A lot of the Christian, Christian leaders in that nation uh, went along with what Hitler was doing, what he was saying, but there were believers who did not. And some of those believers formed what is called the Confessing Church, and that was part of what uh, Bonhoeffer was with. And uh, because of some of the things he said early on in Hitler's regime uh, publicly on radio he ended up taking some jobs overseas for a lot of that period of time but eventually felt led to come back and help fight against Hitler and what he was doing and it ended up it ended up costing him his life it was interesting to me as I thought about Bonhoeffer his situation in some ways perhaps similar to Daniel's but two guys that took a different approach in their pursuit of being faithful. Now, there are situations I'm not going to try to say were identical. I'm not going to say that uh, Hitler was the same as Nebuchadnezzar and those guys. Uh, but these are all pagan rulers ruling over uh, less than godly regimes, we could say, right? And in Bonhoeffer's case, he conspired against the government. In Daniel's case, which you could argue he didn't have much of a choice as a slave... But he served the government, became, by the accounts provided for us, one of the top rulers in that government. And both of them, in their own ways, sought God's face and sought to be faithful in that time, in that difficult spot that they found themselves in, in their day and time. We've been looking for several weeks at Daniel's story and here's this guy that over 2,620 years ago was exiled, was dragged away from his home and his people, his city left in ruins, the temple of God largely destroyed and all that it contained that was holy dragged off to serve pagan gods. 
And he and his friends who had training and who had wisdom and understanding and education uh, were led away to attend the greatest university, you might call it, in the world at that time. To learn what they could and see if they had what it took to serve the greatest king of the world at that time. And they were found wise enough to do that by God's grace. And they did it in some unconventional ways. And they found themselves faced with predicaments. And we've looked week after week of how they stood up against corruption. And how they stood and, and remained faithful in their faith. Uh, even as the culture around them was so different. And did not acknowledge their God. Even when their life was on the line. They were willing to lay it down. And we've been asking ourselves questions about the culture that we live in. Yes, different from theirs, but also corrupt in nature when compared to what God says is the way to live our lives. Uh, the, the culture and lifestyle of our, our world is different from the culture and lifestyle of God's kingdom. And so we've been looking at how can we, in our day and time, be faithful like Daniel, be faithful, like a guy like Bonhoeffer in more recent times. Most of the stories that we've read have been accounts of things that happened to Daniel or happened to his friends. And the last half of the book of Daniel is a little different. Instead of telling stories of what Daniel went through and experienced and his dealings with these pagan rulers and such, it instead turns to a series of visions that Daniel himself had. In this case, he's not interpreting the vision of a king as he had done before, but he's receiving visions. And in fact, having to ask, what does this mean? And he's troubled by it. But he also receives a hopeful word from it. And so today, perhaps as we look at this and try to unpack it, there may be parts of it that are troubling to your spirit. But I hope also that it will bring you hope and a fresh challenge to endure faithfully in the generation that we find ourselves. In Daniel's day, it was pagan armies. It was enslaved peoples dragged away from their homelands. In Bonhoeffer's day, just not that long ago in the scope of history, right? Sometimes we think we've progressed so far in our modern world. But we know what the human heart is capable of, even in a modern era. When we look at places like Nazi Germany, or Stalin's Russia, or Maoist China, and these places where millions were slain. In such a place, how do you live faithfully? And we know that our world today is not immune to evil of even that nature. We know that there is terrorism. We know that there are still regimes in our world that rule as tyrants and show no mercy. Some of them in particular show no mercy to those of a Christian faith or to those of other faiths that they don't like and agree with, and so they hunt them down, and they put 
a black mark on them so that they are persecuted wherever they live. These sorts of evil still exist in the world. Our nation is not immune to it because humans aren't immune to it. Anytime that humans forsake God and his ways, they inevitably will turn into beasts, as Daniel described it in his vision, this vision that he had. Now, when we look at these visions, and we're going to talk about more than just Daniel today, because these visions that Daniel talked about, you know, 2,600 years ago, were still talked about in Jesus' day. We're still talked about in the early church. And so we find it all this kind of same conversation taking place in the New Testament as well. But one thing that we should note about it is that when the Jewish people and prophets would speak about future things to come and mysterious things at work and powers at work behind the scenes, they often used mysterious language to talk about these mysterious things. They loved symbols and numbers, and there's no way that we're going to go as deep as an ancient Jew could have gone with Daniel 7 this morning. And if we had one here, and he could speak English to us, and he tried to explain it to us, uh, we would all be banging our heads on something before this was over. Like, they would take this thing apart. Did you know that all the words, all the letters and such in Hebrew had numbers assigned to them? And, and so then they would break down a passage like this, not only by what it says, but by the numerology of it, the, the numbers. They would add up the number value of each word and figure out significance of certain words. Um, that Oh, look. That equals seven times 70, which is significant. And, you know, like they have all these things going on in the background. This is how the Jewish apocalyptic literature is like. If you ever read a book like Revelation and you're like, man, there's lots of like even numbers and weird things going on with numbers. And, and there's all these weird symbols and there's stars and dragons and beasts and all, you know, this is, this is the language of vision in apocalyptic literature in the Jewish culture. And yes, we struggle to keep up. But the good news is, so did they. <laughs> in fact, this was kind of like a hobby for them, it seems, as we look back at ancient history, to, to try and sort out what did these visions mean? What do these numbers and clues mean? What do these symbols mean? What is this going to mean in our time and in our day? And they all had worked out that this was about the coming Messiah and this was about things to come and this was, had something to do with the pagan rulers of this world. And, but they didn't quite know what to expect. Many of them got it wrong about Jesus. What they were expecting was not quite what happened. So if you feel like you look at this and say, I'm not quite sure I have this straight. They didn't either. <laughs> And these were their stories. And we live in a culture far, far away. Doesn't quite understand all that's going on. And that doesn't mean we can't get anything out of it, though. So let's explore today. And we have an advantage that they did not have. We know something about Jesus. We know something about what he said about all this and what his apostles said about all this. So let's talk about it a little bit. 
Daniel describes these four beasts that come and they represent human governments. It's a little bit, it reminds me a little bit of that first vision that we talked about where the king had a dream and he wouldn't tell anyone what the dream was, but it turns out it was this statue that was in four parts and it represented four kingdoms to come, starting with his and working its way down to a, a final kingdom. That, and then a great kingdom would rise up and shatter the kingdoms of this world. And you remember that if you were here that week, maybe you remember that vision of this statue and and uh, all, you know the different kinds of material it was made from and all. It had four parts to it and this has four beasts each representing another kingdom and then there's this final beast with all these horns representing different kings of this kingdom and then finally a horn that comes up and the other kings submit to this horn and then the horn starts talking, uh, sprouts eyes and a mouth. I mean can you, I, I can't picture this. I'm picturing like a cow horn I guess and I'm just with a mouth. <laughs> <laughs> they probably had a slightly different vision, I don't know, <laughs> than what's coming to my mind, but it looks pretty ridiculous. But it starts speaking all this blasphemy against God and against His laws, against His Word. And then, G and then Daniel, you know, has this vision of um, a courtroom set up in the heavens. You know, sometimes we view heaven as like a far, long ways away up there place. In their culture, heavens was just the, the spiritual realm around us, in the, in the air around us. You ever hear of like the term, it vanished into thin air? This is for them what the spiritual realm was like, in the thin air around us. And so when the courtroom was set up in heaven, it didn't necessarily mean that it was light years away up in the galaxies, but just in the heavenly realm rather than the earthly realm. And he pictures this, this you know, the throne is brought out and the Ancient of Days sits upon it and there's these, uh, you know, this, it's, it's a courtroom scene. And in comes this Son of Man that represents God's people in this courtroom. And he is found worthy and all authority is given to him and the, the beasts are are dealt with and justice and judgment are served and it's this great moment of validation for God's people and so this is what God's people longed for for hundreds of years after Daniel they longed for this moment and other prophets would come and, and share the same story that God's justice would come sometimes we talk about the judgment of God and we tremble and maybe we should. But the judgment of God has always been something that God's people have longed for. And if we struggle with this notion of longing for judgment, then there's either something wrong with our theology or else we just don't know what it feels like to be oppressed, maybe. Because everyone who's ever been oppressed longs for judgment. They long for justice to be served. Because they know which side of that they'll stand on, probably. Okay, every sibling that's ever sat in the back seat of a car with their sibling for a road trip of longer than an hour knows what it feels like to long for justice. <laughs> 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 
Somehow we forget that justice is this great thing this, that's desperately needed in our world. There's so much wrong. There's so much evil that's done. And the whole world will breathe a sigh of relief when it's set right. And evil is dealt with. And things are put in a, in a position where life can flourish. And that's the hope of Scripture. It's what God's people have always longed for. And it's what they were longing for when they met Jesus. This guy who was mysterious in his own right. They couldn't figure him out any better than they could figure out Daniel 7. Daniel's uh, book, this book of Daniel, was popular in Jesus' day. It was something people talked about as they tried to work out who was coming as the Messiah. Other people would rise up and claim to be the Messiah, only to be killed or destroyed. Some of them rose up and fought with a sword. Jesus did something different and unexpected, and people couldn't decide what to make of him. He never quite came out and just said, I'm the guy, follow me, let's go. He never raised a sword. And yet he did things that were very peculiar and Messiah-ish. He would go up on a mountain and then call 12 people to him to be leaders under him. That's pretty interesting if you're a Jew. There's just lots of things he would do and say made people wonder, made them ask. His disciples finally caught on. Eventually it stirred up enough trouble and Jesus rode into town and the people just started celebrating him as the Messiah. This big celebration. And the religious leaders, they didn't like it. They couldn't handle it. They dragged Jesus in and they questioned him. And in Mark 14 we read that the high priest asked him, point blank, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And then he quotes two prophetic passages, one from Psalm 110 and one from Daniel 7. He says, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, that's Psalm 110, and coming on the clouds of heaven, that's Daniel 7. Their culture amazes me. Like, we are so biblically illiterate compared to them, it's not even funny. <laughs> They knew their scripture front and back. Of course, this is the high priest he's talking to. The guy would have had the whole thing memorized. But many people would have had, especially passages like these that prophesied about the Messiah, either memorized verbatim or at least they knew it like the back of their hands. And when Jesus would drop little phrases like this out of Old Testament prophecy, it called to mind for them the whole prophecy of it. And when Jesus describes the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, they know the context. The beasts, the Son of Man coming, the messianic prophecy, the hope of Israel, the hope for justice and judgment. And so the high priest tears his clothes and says, why do we need any more witnesses? I guess he didn't believe Jesus. Didn't think there was any way that this guy could be the one prophesied about in Daniel 7. He just didn't fit their picture. But in Daniel 7, it said, 
There before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. This figure, the son of man, was, uh, yes, the Messiah. And the Messiah was the representative of God's people. It's one of the cool things about Jesus is that he's more than just Jesus. He represents all of God's people. He not only lived the life that we are incapable of living, that was faithful to God, but he also took on the punishment that we deserved. And he was on that cross as the representative of God's people, all God's holy people. And when he comes to rule, he will rule as the representative of God's people. And he will rule with God's people. And that's what's prophesied about in Daniel and in the New Testament as well. So we have this passage from Daniel. We have this saying from Jesus. If you fast forward to Revelation, uh, we're told that we're given a similar vision. That I mean, it's very Daniel 7-esque. In fact, don't even bother reading Revelation unless you're just wanting to read it for fun. Unless you're going to brush up on guys like Daniel and Isaiah. Because it's the same genre and they use the same imagery. And it's, it would be pretty hard to understand without understanding both. And in fact, in this passage in uh, Revelation 13, we run into a very similar situation where there's a beast that looks just like the four beasts of Daniel. The eagle, lion, all these, the same imagery that's used to describe the four beasts in Daniel is used to describe this beast that comes up out of the sea in Revelation 13. And just as in Daniel, this uh, last horn comes and speaks against the Most High and oppresses his people and tries to mess with God's law. And God's people are delivered into his hand for a time. Similarly, in Revelation 13, the beast is given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for a time. There's a, one of those numbers for you. So it opens its mouth and it blasphemes God and it slanders his name and was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. You see the parallel? Hundreds of years later, post-Jesus, a very similar vision given. The Apostle Paul, we can count on him sometimes to speak a little more plainly. With, you know, Paul seldom writes about beasts and horns and you know, eyeballs and <laughs> numbers and things. As, uh, he doesn't get apocalyptic very often. But he wrote to the church in Thessalonica about a man of lawlessness who would rise up. And that there is this spirit of lawlessness, this mystery of lawlessness already at work behind the scenes and the powers that be in his day. But that ultimately that would coalesce into one ruler that would be like a world ruler. And the other kings of the world would bow down to him and to his signs and wonders. And he would, it's this same image of this world government, of this uh, takeover of the world that is anti-God. And same thing when, when this guy does his worst 
this man of lawlessness, then Christ would return. In Revelation, it was when this beast had done its worst, then judgment would come. In Daniel 7, it was when this beast had spoken his blasphemies and done his worst, then the courtroom of heaven would be assembled and justice would be served and the Son of Man would be validated. Jesus said, I'm the guy. You'll see me coming on the clouds. This is not just about uh, Jesus surfing in clouds in the sky. This is about him being validated that he is the guy and that God's people were right about God and about God's truth and that this would be made known to the whole world but that it would happen when it seemed like nothing worse could possibly happen. And this is just kind of my summary, if you will, of all these passages is that evil will do its worst and then evil will do no more. Evil will do its worst and then evil will do no more. Consistently in these prophecies, whether you look in the Old Testament or the New Testament, we're told that it's going to get bad. That human governments will fail in their purpose. That they will become beasts. And the beasts get worse. If you look at Daniel's story, you know, I think it's a good example of how it, things are getting worse. You know, the, the first beast is not as bad as the last beast. These governments become more and more corrupt until eventually one rises up that's so anti-God and so anti-God's ways and so anti-God's people that it seems it couldn't get any worse. And then... God acts. He acts on behalf of his people, on behalf of his creation, on behalf of his and his people's representative, the Messiah. What are our big takeaways from all this crazy prophecy stuff that we're not used to dealing with? Well, we can take away from this that we can expect human governments to become beastly when they forsake God and His truth. We can expect them to go wrong. We can expect things to get worse. Are you feeling better yet today? You glad you came to church? We can express, we can expect that God's people and people of all kinds for that matter, who are oppressed will be longing for justice and longing for peace. We can expect that God will bring that to pass by his chosen Messiah. We can expect that things will get worse before better. I don't know if we can expect a, a world government. That seems to be what's described in all these passages consistently. And it wouldn't be beyond the realm of imagination, would it, to, in our increasingly globalized world and with the technology that we continue to build up that someone might develop some technology or some advancement that is so impressive or that the world wants or needs 
and that the world would bow down to some ruler that says, look, we don't need God. We've got science, or we've got reason, or we've got whatever. It's not impossible to believe something like that could happen. But I'm not here to tell you exactly what it's going to look like, because if I did, I'd be just as wrong as everybody else that tried to tell people exactly what it was going to look like. I can't tell you exactly when it's going to happen or how long 42 months is in prophetic time. But I can tell you that once evil has done its worst, it will do no more. So by, the faith, by faith and by the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus, we cling to this hope that we will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in glory. And all dominion and authority will be given to Him. And He will rule with His people in a kingdom that will never diminish. And this is how we can say, evil will do its worst, and then it will do no more. So what do we do with something like this that's both heavy and hopeful? I wasn't sure what to tell you to do with it. So I was glad that spelled it out for us in uh, Revelation 13.10. So I'll just read that for you. Uh, you ask, what do we do with this? Well, apparently, you weren't the first ones to ask that. So we're told in Revelation 13.10 that this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. We can be patient because we know there's more to come. Because we know God's timing will be as it must be. So we can be patient. Even as we long. That doesn't mean you don't long for God's return. For Christ's return. We don't, it doesn't mean that we don't long for justice now and sooner than later. But we can be patient. Because we know and trust that he knows what he's doing. We can endure because we must and because he promises help to endure. And because there's a reward for those who do endure to the end. So we can endure. And we can remain faithful because God has been so faithful to us and has demonstrated that definitively through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We can be faithful because we know His ways are better. We can remain faithful because we know that sin and opposing God's laws only leads to death and to ruin. And we can remain faithful because His ways are life. They're so good. And so we can be patient as we endure and pursue faithfulness to God and to His ways just as Daniel did in his day and just as Bonhoeffer did in his day. I don't know if we or our kids or our grandkids will live to see worse times than Bonhoeffer saw. Or worse times than Daniel saw. But even if we do, we have this hope that at some point, evil will go on and do its worst. 
And at that point, it will do no more. On the morning of the day that they killed Dietrich Bonhoeffer, between 5 and 6 o'clock, the prisoners were taken from their cells and the verdicts of the court-martial read to them. And through the half-open door in one room of the huts, uh, one of the, the camp doctor writes that he saw Pastor Bonhoeffer before taking off his prison garb, kneeling on the floor and praying fervently to his God. And the doctor writes, I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, and in that setting of all places, he said, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. They say that Bonhoeffer's last words were, this is the end. For me, the beginning of life. This is the end. For me, the beginning of life. God didn't show up for Dietrich Bonhoeffer like he did for those guys in the fire. But just like those guys that went into the fiery furnace, Dietrich Bonhoeffer took the attitude that even if God didn't deliver him, from the fate that the Nazis had in store for him. That he would not kneel to the powers of this world. That he would not take a knee to evil. But that he would remain faithful to his God, come what may. He, like so many of God's people through the ages, would pursue purity in a corrupt world. Would keep an eternal perspective on current events would stand up when everyone else bowed down because he was bowing down to the one who truly deserved his worship that he would choose humility over pride and he would know that once evil had done its worst it would do no more and on that day in his life it did its worst to him and then it could do no more. Daniel 7, verse 14 said, And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Do you believe that one day we will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in glory and that we'll be caught up with him in his glory and he'll be vindicated before all the world and all authority in heaven and on earth will be placed firmly under his feet and justice and peace will prevail, and we who endure will get to be a part of it. Right there with him. 
as he reigns forever. Do you have this hope? Do you have Christ? If you don't have Christ, he's the coming king. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. And someday the whole world will know it. And they will bow before him. But you can bow before him now. And if you've bowed before him now, and you acknowledge him as your king, then you do have this hope. So cling to it on your darkest days. Cling to it when you open the news and wish you hadn't. Cling to it when you worry about your kids and your grandkids. Remember, yeah, it might get worse, but eventually evil will do so much evil and then it will do no more. God will prevail. Amen? Let's pray together and the praise team is going to come and we're going to sing, Is He Worthy? Because yes, He is. Father, thank you for the great examples of faithful followers in dark days gone by. Uh, we confess our tendency to despair when we think about the evil in this world. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would confirm the hope in our hearts. Give us grace to patiently endure and remain faithful until the end. Or for us, the beginning of life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Our coming King. Amen.